0: Got some good questions, and unfortunately it has to be fairly quick. I got ten questions, and we don't have all night, because my wife will give me the evil eye if I don't finish up before 9.30 or so. But I'll I'll do what I can to get through, and if there are not every question is answered completely, I I really uh, can't answer all these completely. The answer to a lot of them is we really can't say for sure which is frustrating for me because I like to have all the answers, but at least we can put scriptural parameters around them to help us think about it further. So the first question is about rewards in heaven. And in particular, if there are rewards in heaven, we are rewarded for what we do on this earth in heaven. What about those people who are saved late in life? Do they have a chance to get extra rewards? Or people who have... Who have uh, been Christians for a long time. it seems like it's sort of unfair advantage that those of us who know Christ can get more heavenly rewards. Well, let me just talk a bit about rewards in heaven. The Bible mentions that there are degrees of reward in heaven just as there are degrees of punishment in hell. There's the parable of the laborers in Matthew 20. Tom mentioned it yesterday briefly. and in that parable there are some laborers who are hired in the morning. And they work all day, and at the end of the day they get what they were promised, they get a denarius. And there are some folks who are hired in the middle of the day, some at the end of the day, who work only an hour or so, and they get a denarius. Everybody who goes and works for whatever length of time gets a denarius. And there's a sense in which all those who end up in heaven get the same reward, and that great reward is eternal life with Christ forever. And we all get that. It's not as though Some people are going to be living in the the squalid apartments in in heaven while the other people get the really nice mansions up on the hill. It does. (laughs) But this eternal life reward is because God is good and generous to all of us, not because we deserve any of it. But there are a few passages that talk about different rewards. Listen to Matthew 16 27. Jesus says the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. And then even at the end of Revelation 22.12 Behold, I am coming quickly, this is Jesus speaking, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. One passage that is often brought up in this context I think primarily refers to pastors and church planters, but 1 Corinthians three. 10 to 15 says this according to the grace of god which was given to me like a wise master builder i laid a foundation and another is building on it but each man must be careful how he builds on it for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid which is jesus christ now if any man builds on the foundation with gold silver precious stones wood hay straw each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So whether it's just pastors and church planters, or it's all believers, there is a kind of burning of our works on this earth, and if they are good works... Righteous works, eternal works, they will remain. But those that are worldly, those that are ineffectual, those that are fleshly will be burned up. There's also, again, we don't have time to go through this, but I think you know it. The parable of the talents in Matthew 25 and the parable of the minas in Luke 19 The lesson for both those is that God rewards us according to our faithfulness. Some have ten talents, five talents, one talent, and you take those talents and use them for the glory of the master to earn more money for him, and the master rewards those who are faithful at the end. Now, we have these works that are are rewarded by God, but we need also to know that we are judged on a couple of bases. First of all, the righteousness of our works. Second Corinthians 5.10 says, For me, we, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So whether you're good or bad, deeds will, will be judged at the end. But also the motive of our works. There are some works that may look good on the outside, but God knows the motives. First Corinthians 4.5, The Lord will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness... And disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. So there may be some great ministries, and in, in, in our eyes, we think the large churches, uh, many people coming to faith in Christ say, but Christ knows the motives, and he will disclose those motives, and so those who build in that way may actually lose out on some rewards because their motive was impure. So the righteousness of our works, the motive of our works, those are all important things to keep in mind as we're considering uh, rewards in heaven. Now, to get to the question of those who are saved for a long time versus those who are saved, saved for a short time, uh, R.C. Sproul had a book called Now That's a Good Question, and it's full of questions and answers. And I, I recommend it to you if you if you run across it. It's, it's fairly thick. It has, I think, 300 questions in it of all different kinds. And he said this about this topic. St. Augustine said that it's only by the grace of God that we ever do anything, even approximating a good work. And none of our works are good enough to demand that God reward them. The fact that God has decided to grant rewards on the basis of obedience or disobedience is what Augustine called God's crowning his own works within us. So we have God's grace to save us. But we also have God's great grace to give us rewards according to the grace he gave us to do them. So if I have any rewards in heaven, anything that doesn't burn up in God's judgment, is it because I was so faithful, ultimately? Or is it because God was gracious to me, and he was faithful to me, or any of us, to do things that will last for eternity? And R.C. Sproul says this in conclusion. I think that's a good place to wrap up this question. I think the gap between tier 1 and tier 10 in heaven is infinitesimal compared to the gap in getting there or not getting there at all. Somebody put it this way. Everybody's cup in heaven is full, but not everybody in heaven has the same size cup. So let's let's move on. If we maybe have time, at the very end, we can uh, ask you can ask some questions live if I'm up to it. And and, uh, my wife lets me. So far, so good. All right, another question. Another easy question. Uh, Do all babies who die go to heaven? Uh, This is a very emotional subject. Uh, John and I have ourselves experienced uh, stillbirth. Some of you have experienced miscarriages or the death of infants or even the death of older children or loved ones who are mentally handicapped. And you wonder... They never had a chance to believe the gospel. They never could understand the gospel. So can they be saved? John MacArthur was asked on the Larry King show. Who knows Larry King? You're old enough. Back in 9-11, he asked John MacArthur on TV, what about babies who died on 9-11? And John said, instant heaven. And he also he has a book called Safe in the Arms of God. And he also tells a story in this book from earlier in his ministry about a distraught woman who came to the church office on a Saturday morning. She was a neighbor lady, and she was asking for help because she thought her baby had died, and John went over there, and he found the child was indeed dead. And he tried to comfort this woman by telling her that her baby was in heaven, safe in the arms of God. And that led him to study the matter in greater detail to assure himself that he had spoken correctly. Now, we don't have explicit teaching on this matter and so we have to reason from scriptural principles to try and get an answer. And some say that we we can't really know, and so we should just not even say much about it, just trust God to do what's right. But I think we can kind of get somewhere close to a better understanding, even if we can't get all the way to a final answer. We can try to build a case based on inference from scripture. One verse that people often bring up is Second Samuel 12, 23. This is when David has sinned with Bathsheba, and it's a judgment on David for his sin with her. He, God takes the life of the little one that was born of their uh, their sin. And David says, but now he has died, that is his his infant. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Not a lot of people think that David here is expressing confidence that he will see his child again in paradise or, or something like that. Or it may be David just saying that they will both go to the realm of the dead. It's not explicit that David is saying that I'm actually going to see him and we're going to fellowship in heaven forever. Others ground this idea of babies going to heaven in verses that showed Jesus' special love for children. Matthew 18.3, just one example. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And Matthew 19.14 says, Jesus says, Let the children alone, and do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And so Jesus compares the believers in himself with little children. Now, the consensus, and it may be universal uh, among Reformed theologians, is that God saves at least some infants who die. The 1689 Confession, which I talked about some this morning, says, "...elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit, who works when and where and how he pleases. So also are all elect persons who are incapable of outwardly being called by the ministry of the Word." What that last part means is those who may be mentally unable to understand the gospel. And so there are elect infants or elect others who cannot understand the word who may be saved, or the elect ones will be saved. But that leads to the question then, are all such infants elect, or is there a subset of those who are elect? Perhaps the infants of believers. Some people think that infants of believers are, may be the ones who can go to heaven. And those tend to be Presbyterians who who have this sort of idea, some of them, of covenant. Yeah, it's sort of funny, but it's you'd expect that, right? Because they, they have this idea of covenant children, many of them. The Baptists tend to have more the belief that if they believe that uh, children are saved at all, that all children will be saved. But we could say this, that sort of logically speaking, God could righteously save no infants he could righteously save some infants or righteously save all infants. But if he saves any, it's not because they don't deserve death as in, as all in Adam are sinners. As much as we love our children and like to think that they're innocent, we know right away they're not. They, they come out sinners and they remain sinners for their lives. But And again, so it's not because they don't deserve death, but because God is gracious. Charles Spurgeon said this, some ground the idea of eternal blessedness of the infant upon its innocence. We do no such thing. We believe that the infant fell in the first Adam. Now having said that, such infants who die in infancy, while sinners have never consciously disobeyed God's law, either the law written on its heart or God's written law, so they may not be as culpable in the same way as those who have consciously disobeyed God's law. When the scriptures talk about those who are sent to hell, it talks about the evil deeds they have done, not their descent from Adam. Now, the predominant view today that that I've seen anyway, and, and in the recent past, is at least that all infants who die go to heaven. But we must be consistent to say that if God elects any infants and sends them to heaven, they are sinners and they are only saved by the death of Christ and regenerated by the Spirit. But we would say that in these cases where someone who can't understand the gospel, God does not use the means of his word and conscious faith, but he does bring about the new life and regeneration by the Spirit of God. Now ultimately we'll have to wait to heaven to know for sure but we know that whatever God does or has done will be perfectly righteous. Third question, will we work in heaven? Will we work in heaven? And it's interesting that the Bible begins with mankind in the garden with the tree of life in a state of perfect righteousness. I mentioned this earlier this morning. And then at the end of the Bible, we see something like a garden in Revelation 22. Verses 1 to 3 says this, Then he showed me a river of the water of life clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was a tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit every month and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will be no longer any curse and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his bondservants will serve him. His bond servants will serve him. So even as we enjoy the blessings of heaven, we will serve God. There's also a description earlier in Revelation of those who come out of the Great Tribulation. Chapter 7.15 says they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. What was the job of the priests in the Old Testament? To serve God in the temple or the tabernacle. And so we are a kingdom of priests and so we serve God day and night in his temple. Now, there is no temple in heaven. But God Himself and the Lamb are the temple. So it's, it's hard to kind of get your mind around that. There's a temple, there's not a temple. God Himself is a temple, Christ is a temple. So we serve God in the sphere of heaven. Now, what that work consists of, we can't say for sure. Adam's job was to what? Tend the garden, Tend the garden till the ground. So work is not a result of the curse. As much as we like to think so, work is a pre curse. Uh, commission from God but toilsome and f- sometimes fruitless work is a result of the curse but our work in heaven just as our highest work on earth will be to serve God in whatever a- way he desires now the Bible doesn't say if we'll have occupations like we do today like I'm a computer programmer are there going to be computers in heaven? I don't know um, there won't be need f- who says I hope not? <laughs> I rebuke you Anyway, I don't know, but will there? If, if there are computers, will they will they crash? And <laughs> we won't need Macs to come fix them. Come yes. Um, maybe some upgrades from time to time, but no, we don't have to repair them. Yes, but things like uh, police officers, military men, lots of jobs that we need because of sinners, politicians for sure. <laughs> we don't need them in heaven. Yeah, no lawyers will be necessary, that's right uh, even pastors will they, we don't need somebody to explain the, the word of God to us Will we? we'll all have that same sort of knowledge won't we so whatever occupations are whether they're anything like what we do on earth there is work for us we're not just going to be sitting back in and, and a, and a lazy boy uh, watching TV for all eternity but the work, whatever work we have will be without curse, without sweat without ignorance without fatigue, without failure, without sin, whatever is vexing in our work today will not be there in heaven. Let me quote Spurgeon again. I could just quote Spurgeon for all these things. But he says this, a true idea of heaven is that it is a place of uninterrupted service. It is a land where they serve God day and night in his temple and never know weariness and never required to slumber. Service is delight. He's talking about on the earth right now. Service is delight. Praising God is a pleasure. Laboring for him is the highest bliss a mortal can know. And now he looks to heaven. Oh, how sweet it must be to sing his praises and never feel that the throat is dry. Oh, how blessed to flap the wing forever and never feel it flag. Oh, what sweet enjoyment to fly upon his errands evermore, to circle round the throne of God in heaven while eternity shall last and never once lay the head on the pillow Never once feel the throbbing of fatigue, and never once the pangs that admonish us that we need to cease, but to keep on forever like eternity's own self, a broad river rolling on with perpetual floods of labor. Oh, that must be enjoyment, that must be heaven to serve God day and night in his temple. Question four, if you're keeping track. Where do Catholics get their idea of purgatory? Where do Catholics get their idea of purgatory? Now, if you don't know, purgatory is the idea that most Christians need to be purged of remaining traces of sin between death and entrance into heaven so that the souls can be completely holy. I talked about this a bit earlier today. And historians aren't exactly sure of the origin, but it started pretty early in church history and was confirmed in later councils of the Roman Catholic Church. And there is a question Again, as we talked about this morning, we're sinners on earth. Our bodies are subject to sin. Our souls are subject to sin. How do we get from that sinful soul on earth to a sinless soul in heaven? Now, the Protestant answer is that God transforms us immediately into a a perfect saint in heaven. But the Catholic idea is that it takes this purging. That's where the word purgatory comes from, a purging of sin from the soul over time to get into heaven. The Catholic Catechism says this, All who die in God's grace and fellowship, friendship, but still imperfectly purified, are indeed assured of their eternal salvation. But after death, they undergo purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. But this purification, this purging, involves painful suffering, sometimes for many years, unless it's shortened by almsgiving, or prayers for the dead, or special masses, or dispensations from the Pope out of the treasury of merit from the saints. So the idea is here that the saints and Christ have extra grace. So it's in this treasury in heaven and we just have to unlock that treasure so that uh, Uncle Bob or Aunt Sally or Grandpa Joe who are in purgatory can get out. you recall it was an issue in the Protestant Reformation about this These payments to get people out of purgatory, and the the church would be fleecing the people. People who had no money to spare would be exhorted: you need to give more money so that you can get your loved ones out of purgatory. These things called indulgences get them out of purgatory. Pay us money, and they can get out. You might have seen people uh, going up these these stairs in Rome, um, and these, these really uh, difficult stairs, climbing on their knees, bleeding up the stairs to suffer for the sake of their loved ones in purgatory to get them out more quickly. Some Catholics may use a verse I read earlier, First Corinthians 3.15, where it, uh, it says if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. And they'll say this fire is the the fires of purgatory that will cleanse your soul, like, uh, if you have some, some metal that's impure and you heat that metal, you, you boil it, you get the impurities out, you burn them out, that's what happens to our souls, they believe, in purgatory. This may either be a literal fire or a figurative fire, but in any case, it's painful for the soul to go through as it, as it waits to enter into heaven. Catholics will also use a couple of verses from Maccabees and most Protestants don't accept that as scripture so we can just discard that up front but let me just read the verses to you so you have an idea 2 Maccabees twelve forty two, and this is on behalf of some comrades who had fallen in battle they, they that is the other soldiers turned to supplication praying that the sin that had been committed might be wholly blotted out now we as Protestants don't pray after the fact after somebody's died that God would save them from their sins at that point it's too late because the writer of Hebrews says, it's appointed for men to die once, after this comes judgment. At that point, it's too late. You often, by the way, notice this. If somebody dies, and they say, pray for the person who died, they're very often Roman Catholic. You pray for the one who has died. Protestants won't say that, because we believe that at that point, their, their choice is forever. Whether they're in heaven or not, uh, it's It's already fixed. One more verse in Second Maccabees, though, 12.45. A Judas Maccabeus made atonement for the dead so that they might be delivered from their sin. So again, this kind of thing can happen after death that helps atone for sins. That would be the idea of purgatory. Now, Protestants agree in one sense with Roman Catholics that we must be purified to enter heaven. We can't enter heaven as we are now, sinful. But again, this happens by an instantaneous work of the Holy Spirit on the basis of Christ's sacrifice, at the moment of death. Let's move on to question number five. <clears throat> number five. This question is, does cremation prevent one from obtaining their glorified body? And a follow-up question, is it a sin to be cremated? Now, we know that there have been believers who have been cremated against their will, or sawn into or torn by wild beasts, or drowned in the ocean by those who have hated them. And there are also many who have died in ages long past. Their bodies have long since decayed into unrecognizable dust. What about maybe if Elon Musk gets his wish and people can go to Mars? If we go to Mars and die on Mars, are we stuck because we're not here on Earth? Um, Maybe faraway star systems like Star Trek. If we're on planet Alpha Centuri, can we get back for the resurrection of the dead? Well, the answer to that is Philippians 3.21, and I read this again earlier this morning. Christ will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory, that is his resurrection body, by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. So Christ has the power to do whatever he needs to do to raise us, in our new bodies, the Christians who are cremated will indeed receive their glorified body, however it must be done. But now to follow up, is it a sin to be cremated? And There's no scripture that directly forbids cremation, but it was associated with curses and punishment in, in the Bible. You might remember Achan in the book of Joshua. He had <clears throat> taken some things that were under the ban at Jericho. And Joshua said to him, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned them with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. The burning of bodies is also associated with the pagan practices of Canaan. Remember, they offered their children by fire to Molech. And there are other religions for which the body is a kind of prison of the soul, and cremation releases the soul from the body. They actually cremate for that reason, your soul is trapped in the body. You want the soul to be free. So you burn the body, and the soul goes up to heaven or whatever its reward is. Now, this idea of releasing the soul from the body by cremating directly contradicts the biblical teaching that the body is a good thing created by God, and our resurrection bodies will be forever joined to our souls. There are also verses like First Corinthians 6.19, where Paul says, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is within you. So verses like these, plus the fact that Jews did not generally cremate, and Jesus himself was buried, and there is no example of cremation in the New Testament, has led Christians throughout the ages to bury, and in fact to show great reverence to dead bodies. Now Jesus wasn't buried in the way that we think of buried. He was buried in a cave. We think of people being buried in the ground in a coffin. Jesus wasn't buried that way, but he was put in the ground. Now, there are some Christians for which cremation is utterly abhorrent and should never be practiced by Christians. Indeed, it would be sinful to be practiced by a Christian. But I don't have such strong feelings about this, and maybe you do. Now, I confess I'm not entirely objective about this. Uh, Joan and I had a stillborn baby, girl, years ago, and we found out on a Friday. Actually, the baby stopped moving on Wednesday or Thursday. We found out on a Friday that she had died, and she was delivered on that Sunday. And after we held her in our arms for a brief time, we had to decide what do we do with this little body that has died. <clears throat> I'm not sure if we even considered a burial plot for one so small and that she was only about this long. And We weren't in a place emotionally to carefully think through all the theological ramifications of our decision. But we chose to have her body cremated and her ashes put into a little ceramic urn shaped like a baby booty and we keep that on our dresser and we think about her from time to time as we see that object in our room. And I don't know if I'd do that again. Uh, Thankfully, it hasn't been an issue for us. But for infants, children, and adults, my preference would be to bury them, mostly out of respect for the body and in conformance with Christian practice through the centuries, though I myself don't believe it's always wrong to do so. Something more cheery. How about that? Number six. Getting a little quiet in here. Will we recognize our friends and family when we get to heaven? Will we recognize our friends and family when we get to heaven? And once again, the Bible doesn't say much about this, but we would expect so. Remember, we still keep our individuality. Our individuality doesn't consist in just our bodies, but also our souls. Even without our resurrection bodies, there's still an us that exists. Jesus' disciples recognized him after the resurrection, though he had a resurrection body. And even though they didn't always recognize him right away, it's not like Jesus looked totally different. Like he was, uh, you know, six foot three and dark hair and brown eyes. And then he he was resurrected and looked totally different to them. He was recognizable as Jesus. Just another possible data point, we can't read too much into a parable, but the rich man in Hades recognized Lazarus in Abraham's bosom in Luke 16. Another mm-hmm. verse we could consider, Matthew 8:11. Jesus says, "...many will come from the east and west," talking about the Gentiles, "...and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven." So again, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have their personalities, their individual, individual personalities intact in heaven." Um, if you have your Bibles handy, let's look at First Thessalonians four. First Thessalonians four, Paul spends a lot of time with the Thessalonians, comforting them about those who have preceded them in death with regard to their resurrection. First Thessalonians chapter four, verse seventeen <clears throat> says this, "We who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we shall always be with the Lord therefore comfort one another with these words the important words for this discussion are with them that is paul was comforting the thessalonians they were to comfort each other with the truth that when we go to be with Christ we will be with them that is not just general christians which would be great but with those that we love on this earth. The Thessalonians would be reunited with those Thessalonians who have already preceded them in death. That would be a reunion for them. So the comfort isn't that we'll just be caught up with any old believers, but with our particular friends. Jonathan Edwards says this, The special affection that the saints have in this world toward other saints who are their friends will in some respect remain in another world. And Spurgeon recalls the story of a pastor whose wife asked, Do you think you'll know me in heaven? And the man said, Why? I know you here, and do you think I should be a bigger fool in heaven than I am on earth? <laughs> it's a pretty pithy way of saying it, but g- good point. But having said that, if we can imagine a little bit, how do we recognize bodiless souls? We talked about this again this morning. You close your eyes, and you die, you go to heaven, And then you, what? You have a soul, no body, eyes, ears, mouth. I don't know how you recognize a body, a soul. It's not like some sort of ghost beings floating around that we can say, oh, that ghost is kind of shaped like somebody I know. I don't know how we will as spirits recognize other spirits in heaven, but we do know we will somehow. Number seven. This is kind of related. Can our loved ones see us from heaven? Can our loved ones see us from heaven? This is a common thought at funerals, isn't it? I I just believe that he or she is looking down at us and smiling right now. Anybody heard that at a a funeral? And I say, you know what, maybe I, let me preach next time and and we'll talk about this. There is no scriptural support for this at all. As much as we, we might like to think that our loved ones are looking down at us and and smiling at us, or otherwise enjoying what's going on with us here on earth. There's no scripture that supports that. Some will quote uh, Hebrews 12.1, and you know this, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And they think this is a picture like a, a stadium, and we're running this race in a stadium, and the people in the stands are those people who have preceded us in death, our friends and family, our loved ones, other people, other Christians, and they're, they're cheering us on watching what we're doing in this world. But the passage doesn't say that. It's referring back to the saints in Hebrews 11 and others like them being witnesses to the blessings of faith. They are called witnesses because their lives are a testimony not because they are watching us. We tend to think of witnesses as somebody who watches something. You're a witness to a crime, say, because you saw that thing. They're not witnessing us. They're witnessing to. They're witnessing to Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they they know that that they've come from the tribulation. They know that what something is happening on earth. But whether they know specific things that are happening, they're actually watching. The, the things that are happening on the earth, it's, it's unclear they understand what's going on uh, in, in specific terms. They, they know that their, their brothers and sisters are suffering uh, at the hands of the, the wicked, but as, they're not watching their, their little boy or their little girl, their friends and their, their church individually saying, so and so is being beaten up right now, Lord deliver them. Yep. But very good question. And really, we, we might ask ourselves, if it were the case that they could see us from heaven and watch what's going on, how would that work? Do they only look down when they want to, maybe check in from time to time like we, we might do ourselves? I have this Live 360 on my phone so I can see where my family is at all times when, when we're not at CISPIS with no cell service. <laughs> or at least I know where their phones are, right? So if if this never happens. But if Joan left her phone at home and she's at work or someplace else, it says she's at home when she's not. Um, So I know where their phones are most of the time. Is that how it is in heaven? We want to check in on our loved ones and I wonder what so-and-so is doing. I I just sort of get a little view whatever and look down and see what's happening. Or maybe God gives them a special view of, of what's happening at particular events. Now this typically comes in the context of positive things like our loved ones see somebody graduate from high school or get married or have some other special time in their life but would we actually want our loved ones in heaven to see us when we're sinning? Like, we ever, everybody say, "Oh yeah, my grandma is watching me right now as I as I commit sin," or maybe we're doing something very private, right? Something very private. We don't want anybody to see. Not necessarily sinful, but it's private. Do we want our blood ones watching us then? I don't think so. So you can maybe reduce it to something kind of absurd, but that's again something that the Bible doesn't doesn't teach that that it really happens. So ultimately. Once again, we can't say for sure, but I really doubt it. And they have better things to do in heaven than watch us anyway, I think. And so, if you're thinking about getting encouragement about those who have died, getting encouragement from them cheering you on from heaven, it's better, I think, to get encouragement from their lives and their testimony of faith and the joy that they are now with Christ, enjoying Him perfectly. So we can rejoice, not that they're watching me, but that they're watching Christ. Alright. Number eight. Okay, John? Okay. Hers is the only opinion that matters. Trust me, young men. You're not married. You'll learn that. Uh, number eight. Is it true that we will all enter eternity at the same time since time as we know it doesn't exist there? That's kind of a hard question to, to parse, but let me, let me sing part of a, an old hymn for you and this will tell you a lot about the your church background, and maybe your age. When the trumpet of the Lord shall sound, and time shall be no more. That... Yeah, yeah I, we, we know. Uh, okay, okay. You want to keep going? I, I forgot the lyrics here. But yes, that's a great old hymn, but when the trumpet of the Lord shall sound, and time shall be no more. Now, there is a biblical, sort of biblical basis for that. This is based on a particular passage in the King James Version, Revelation 10, 5 to 6. The angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven and swore by him that liveth forever and ever who created heaven and the things that therein are and the earth and the things that therein are and the sea and the things which are therein that there should be time no longer. So there it is, there should be time no longer. And people have thought who only read the King James that this means that time sort of stops or at least time as we know it stops. But if you look at, say, the New, or the New American Standard, or the ESV, there, it's actually translated something like, there will be delay no longer. That is, things have been held back for a time, but now it's time for things to really get going in terms of the, the coming of Christ. Even the New King James says there should be delay no longer. So, the idea isn't that time stops, like, like in a movie, you kind of pause like this, but that, God has held back for a time, and now he's going to go uh, full-on into the, the end times. In fact, if you look at this in the King James, in Revelation 10, in just a few verses, it mentions the two witnesses who prophesy for three and a half years, and there are many other references to time, even as time is no longer in the King James Version. And I think as we consider if there's time in heaven, I think there must be, because and one example, Revelation 20, 20, uh, 22, 2 says, The tree of life bears 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. So there are somehow months in heaven. How that works, I don't know exactly if there's not a moon there, because we have the term month for moon. But in any case, there is some marker of time. Uh, there's also verses like Jude, the end of Jude. Which says it refers to that Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever and that is literally to all the ages. And so it's talking about forever being to all the ages. not that time stops, but there's age after age after age. And then Ephesians 2 verses 4 to 7 says, and I won't read the whole passage, but let me read the last verse or two. It says, God has raised us up with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So there are the ages to come. We are trophies of God's grace forever. So to answer the question about eternity, I think that time does exist in heaven like it does today. But if it doesn't exist that way, there's no scripture that really teaches that. And even if they're we're, I'm not sure we can really get our heads around it, because everything we do is so time-bound. So if time is not like it is today, I couldn't explain it to you. <laughs> but that's a good question. Okay, number nine. We're getting close here. This would be important to some of you. For me, not so much. Yes? Yeah, and, and we, we don't. We get our resurrection bodies at the same time. But we, we don't enter at the same time. Whenever we die, we're with, with the Lord. And so, those who are there ahead of us, they have an extra little blessing with Christ that, that we don't get. Yes, that, that the resurrection body will be at the same time, yeah. Number nine. Will there be animals in heaven? Why are well, you laughing, Rita? Do you have some inkling where I'm going with this? Okay. That's right. Rita and I are on this question. All right. I'm losing you here. Will there be animals in heaven? Now, once again, the Bible doesn't say anything for certain about animals in heaven. Revelation 19 mentions Christ coming on a white horse, and Revelation 19.14 says, The armies which are in heaven are clothed in fine linen, white and clean, and following him on white horses. But this following Christ on white horses may be symbolic of victory, because the victors would ride in on white horses. It doesn't necessarily mean that the streets of gold are filled with horses, and that we'll all be sort of riding around instead of using Segways or scooters or, or cars that will be riding horses all, all over the place. Another verse people will mention in this context is Isaiah 65, 25. I think you know this. The wolf and the lamb will graze together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will do eat no evil or harm in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. But your view of this verse in Isaiah may depend on your view of the end times, if this is part of the millennium, say, or part of the eternal state. Now, this is just speculation, but... As I think about the new heavens and new earth and that it's even greater, as Tom was saying yesterday, than what we have here on earth, it's hard for me to imagine that God would create the new heavens and new earth with fewer creatures than the old earth. The animals are one of the most amazing displays of God's creation in this world. Who loves to watch those animal documentaries and all the amazing things that God does and things that nobody even could understand until now when we have slow motion cameras and we can sort of follow them in places that nobody could see before. And so we might ask ourselves, would God glorify himself in a similar way in the world to come? But it could be that these animals would be different from the animals that are here. Uh, What would the nature of such animals be? We can't say for sure, and and the Bible doesn't, again, indicate. Uh, One other factor in all this is that the, the Bible doesn't talk about animals having an eternal soul. We talked about people having eternal souls, but our animals, as much as we might love them, don't have eternal souls. At least, not as far as we can tell. And the question then would be: If some animals have eternal souls, which ones do? Are they just the more uh, uh, the higher we might call the higher animals? I mean, do do flies and slugs and spiders have souls? Uh, Well, yeah, spiders for sure not. But (laughs) um, but dogs. (laughs) We have so dogs, cats, or, or just the animals we like that they have souls. There's again no indication of anything like that in Scripture, so we we'd just be guessing or or hoping perhaps. Now, a related a, a question would be: What about pets? That is, were there be some specific animals in heaven that meant something to us? And I ran across this as I was studying. And how many of you celebrated Rainbow Bridge Remembrance Day? Nobody. You did, huh? That, that's okay. April or, or August twenty eighth just happened. Um, there wasn't a special flag or anything on the on the Tacoma Dome, so I, you might not have been aware of it. Anyway, th- there's a quote related to that. Just this side of heaven is a place called Rainbow Bridge. When an animal dies that has been especially close to someone here, that pet goes to Rainbow Bridge. And there your animal waits for you. And when you die, then you cross the Rainbow Bridge together. Now, I can understand the sentiment. Well, I wouldn't have that sentiment myself. Some of you, I know you love your animals, you love your pets. We've seen that this weekend. Uh, I myself don't have such affection for my animals, <laughs> if you know me. Um, but it would just be, again, pure speculation on my part as to what would happen in heaven with our particular pets. It, it is amazing that God has created these creatures that can get so attached to us and that we can get so attached to. And it's... We, Kind of laugh about it, but there is real grief when a pet we love dies, and so I, I wouldn't want to mock any, any of that myself, even if I don't necessarily feel it as deeply. That right? There's nothing in the Bible that says that, so yeah. Well, and Joan and I talk about this sometimes. She, yeah, Joan and I talk about this. We, we've already agreed that we get next door plots in heaven, but. The question is about the, the animals. Um, I'm not sure. Well, she gets the, the dogs. Let's put it that way. <laughs> if, if they are in heaven, she gets them. And she'll come visit me. I won't go visit her. Um, because if my pets were in heaven, it's there's going to be trouble. Um, but I, I will say, that this is another quote from R.C. Sproul. He says, All of this is sheer speculation, but I would like to think that we will see our beloved pets again someday, as they participate in the benefits of the redemption that Christ has achieved for the human race. So Sproul thinks we might see our beloved pets again, but again I say, what if our pets aren't beloved? Uh, or, <laughs> <laughs> or would this extend to just dogs and cats? What about horses, turtles, birds, snakes, spiders, we already talked about, elephants? People have all kinds of funny pets. Some people have boa constructors or pythons as pets. Are those in heaven too? What about the kind of interesting cat ladies who have 30 cats at a time, are they going to have, well, okay. We'll we'll set aside the snakes. What's that? (laughs) Well, there you go. But it does say, actually, in, later in, in Revelation, that outside the kingdom of heaven are what the the dogs. But it's not talking about real. It's not talking about literal dogs. It doesn't mention cats. Well, what I, I heard was that the animals don't sin, so therefore they don't need a savior. Well, that's true, but we <laughs> what's animal sin? Yeah, well, yeah, David knows. They don't understand God's law though, do they? No. They do disobey our law for sure. Regularly. Every time I come home from work. <sighs> okay. Well this this is a happy place. Uh sure. Yeah, are you, are you talking about the spirits of, that is, the, the spirits of animals, they really have eternal spirits? Yeah, that, that's a good, good point. And the, the word for spirit in Hebrew and in, and in Greek is the word, same word as breath. And so they do have a breath, at least the higher animals have, have a breath, and that breath stops, they they die. And, but that doesn't mean that they necessarily have eternal spirits like we have, but they have a breath within them, and that breath is an indication of life, so if that that's how it, understand that. Sure, good question. All right, number ten. Before I lose you completely, um, and this should be fairly quick. I think. Why does First Thessalonians four speak of those who have fallen asleep? Death is more than taking a nap. First Thessalonians four says this. We do. I think. Did we actually read that earlier? We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And you might also remember 1 Corinthians 11.30, Paul says, For this reason many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep, referring to death. Now in these passages, passages, sleep is just a euphemism for physical death because when somebody is dead they look like they are or sometimes the people are asleep they look like they are yes similar pose sometimes now some have taught that there's kind of soul sleep where the soul is inert until christ returns so you're you when you die your soul sleeps for a while until the resurrection but this contradicts paul's words that we saw this morning that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So we're not put in some sort of giant uh sleep chamber while we wait for Christ to come back. When we're absent from the body, we're with the Lord. Also, we could think of Moses and Elijah on the mount of transfiguration. Did God have to wake up Moses and Elijah and say, "Hey, I got a job for you. Go meet Jesus down, wake up, go go see Jesus and then come back and go back to sleep until the the end of time." Or Abraham, Lazarus, uh again, in that in that parable, they were both awake. Or we have Stephen, where he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. You can't imagine Jesus saying, Okay, Stephen, I receive your spirit. Now go to sleep for a while. Stephen's hope was that he would be with Christ at that moment when he died. So there's no idea truly in Scripture that when you die, you your soul sleeps. Your body is, in a sense, sleeping to be raised to your resurrection body in the future. All right, that's 10. Do I need to ask if there are any more questions about these ones or other things, or shall we wrap it up? Yeah, Christ bore our sins and his body on the cross, right? So we don't need to bear them ourselves. We might be disciplined for a while uh, on this earth, but yeah, the purging is all done by him and we can never pay our sins. Our our smallest sin is worth an infinity of hell, isn't it? So 10,000 years wouldn't be enough to purge out my sins. Um, It's all by Christ's grace. All right, I think you're all ready to play some cornhole. So... Why don't we stop there unless there's one last question? All right. Let's close. Oh, Leonard. <laughs> back, back, back I need a buzzer. <laughs> back to the babies die and, and they go to heaven. We should be real careful about that because the abortionists have made the claim, well, let's kill all those babies so they'll go all go to heaven. Yeah, well, there's people in the Bible who said let's do evil that good may come too, Right. So just because you might have what you think is a good outcome doesn't mean you're allowed to stand to do that, right? Yeah. Well, thanks for your good questions. And hopefully that's encouraging to you. Sorry, so many of the answers were, I don't know. But hopefully you have enough scriptural parameters to help you have a better understanding anyway before you say, I don't know. It's nice to, if you can't ultimately say, I don't know, it's nice to get as far as you can to the reason you don't know. At least for me. Let's close in prayer. Father, we do thank you that you have shown us so much about heaven in your word. You've given us enough, even though it might not always give us all the information we'd want. It's all that we need. And so we pray that you would help us to hold on tightly to what we do know and to save speculation for heaven itself and when we will know fully. We thank you again for the truth of heaven. We thank you that you love us so much that you will Uh, grant us all the blessings of heaven that we will ever need. And if there are things that we might want in heaven that aren't there, that's okay because we have more than we deserve and much more than we could ever imagine. We pray that you would encourage us as we go from this place to have great thoughts of heaven, to think often of Christ and the fact that he's there waiting for us and preparing a place for us. May that give us strength and encouragement in the days to come. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.